Okay. First question. Dear Ajahn Brahm, some of my customers are looking for little mistakes, misunderstanding, to, to get huge compensation. If, they, if not, they will write a bad review. I apologize, do whatever I can and send them loving kindness. It does not help. And they're ruining my business. What to do? I don't know what your business is. <laughs> Some of your customers, they look for little mistakes to get huge compensation. Are you a, a surgeon or something? Get huge compensation. They will write a, a right bad review. You know, sometimes... I don't know who the person is to get huge compensation. There's sometimes that people like to exploit other people, but usually what happens, if somebody does some bad karma like that, they're just looking at for themselves and not for others, they usually get a very, very bad mind. And people actually feel guilty afterwards. And if they start feeling guilty, they just get a, a very bad lifestyle. So. I do whatever I can, and seven loving kindness does not help, and they're ruining my business. It's ruining them as well. But I'm sure you've got lots of good customers. Get huge compensation. If it's monetary compensation, um, can you get insurance or something? So you've got me in that one. That's more like business. But anyway, uh, what you can do, I don't know if this is... Uh, a man or a woman wrote this. If you're a man who wrote this, come and become a monk. <laughs> That's the solution. If you're a woman, become a nun. Because we don't get sued. No one sues me. I can say whatever I like because I've got no money. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know why people just look for exploiting other people who are vulnerable. As long as you are you know, trying to do your very best, that's all you can do. Little mistakes or misunderstandings to get huge compensation. It makes no sense to me. So, sorry, I just don't understand that um, real question because it's not really in my area. Yes, some people get misunderstandings or... I make mistakes, but when I do, you apologize if you can, if you made mistakes. If you haven't made a mistake, Ajahn Chah's teaching. If someone criticizes you, what should you do? If they criticize you, you should always look at your bottom. It's obvious. If they call you a dog, Look at your bottom to see if you've got a tail. If you haven't got a tail, you can't be a dog. They're wrong, and that's it. If you can see a tail down there, you say, oh, thank you for criticizing me, I shouldn't have said that. But a lot of the time, you haven't got a tail. So there's no problem there. Did I, did I tell the story about the African-American GI in Ubon? To you? Okay, must have been in somebody else. This was in the, during the Vietnam War. There was actually a U.S. air base not far from Ubon, where Ajahn Chah was. And one day, this African-American soldier, he got one of the cycle rickshaws to go into town for some business or other. A really big guy. 
and he was sitting in the back of the rickshaw just looking at the scenery when the driver, he drove past this roadside bar where many of his friends were getting drunk on Mekong whiskey. And his friends pointed to this big black American soldier and they very offensively said, where are you taking that black African dog to? I mean, that's, they were drunk. I mean, she never have done that even if they were sober. But nevertheless, sort of the African... That's fighting language. The black African soldier just still looking at the scenery. So the, the driver thought, oh, you can't understand the Thai language. So he said, look how dirty he is. I'm taking him into town and throwing him in the river for a good wash. Ha, 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 ha. And the soldier was just smiling, looking at the scenery. When they got into town, the black African-American soldier uh, got down from the rickshaw and started walking away without paying. And that's when the rickshaw driver shouted out, Sir, sir, money fair. And that's when the black African soldier, African-American soldier, just turned around and said in fluent Thai, dogs don't have any money. <laughs> and that's about all around everywhere in that area, even to Ajahn Chah. He said, that's a wonderful way if you're abused. See if you can make use of that. If they call you a dog, you can say, we don't have to pay any money for the meal or whatever else you just had. Dogs don't have money. Anyway, I kind of like that. But that's all I can really do there. Okay. Did the death of your father when you were young help lead you to Buddhism? Actually, no, I was already a Buddhist before he died. Only starting off. The reason I became a Buddhist, for those of you who don't know, I realized that spirituality was important. Religion was important. And it never made any sense to me, I was a logical person, why should you follow a religion just because your parents followed it or because the many people in the country followed it? Make your own decision. It's like if you buy a car. What car suits you? You don't have to buy the same model car as your parents had or your brother has. What car, so what do you do? You do market research. Find out you know, how much it costs, you know, what you need it for, how reliable it is. So I decided that I need to do market research on religion. I was pretty clued up with the Anglican religion, but what about the Catholic religion? You know, the Catholic Bible is different than the Anglican Bible. It's got more Gospels in it. Even in Christianity, they can't exactly decide what Jesus taught or what God taught, or whatever somebody taught. But anyway, so I did some research, but also on Islam, and also on Hinduism, and also, what else on it? Judaism, and of course, Buddhism. I wanted to find out, you know, what these things taught. I was only about 15, 16 years of age, just before my father died. So I, I went to the bookshop and got books on all these different religions. I thought that was a smart way. I did my market research. It was when I saw the books on Buddhism, I kind of liked that. 
and that was the one which kind of suited me. Actually, it was more than that. To be honest with you, when I read my first book on Buddhism, I realized I was a Buddhist already, and I never knew it. Many people have the same experience. You read something, well, all the ideas I had has got a name and shared with so many other thousands and millions of people in the world. It's called Buddhism. So that's when I started calling myself a Buddhist. The thing was, I didn't know what to do next. So that's when, you know, I didn't know any other Buddhist in the whole world. So eventually, when you got to college, you found a Buddhist society, and that was really helpful. Aha! Dear Ajahn, please explain the experience of second jhana if there is no, is there no will? Is it possible to turn will back on? How do suttas explain the absence of will with, metta, with much metta and deepest respect? In that second jhana, the will stops for a while. It's not destroyed, it's just not available for you. Uh, and so when you come out of that second jhana, the will turns on again. You don't turn the will on, it's just the conditions uh, are there to get the will going again. And this is where the suttas sometimes mention, it's what said by the Buddha at almost the very beginning of his career as a teacher, there'll be very few people understand Sabha-sankhara samatha. That's one of the quotes of the Buddha, the calming of all the will. Calming, settling it. They think that's impossible. But that's just what happens. You don't decide to do it. You don't will the will to stop, and you can't will the will to start again, because there's no will to get it going again when the will is gone. So it becomes just this thing which is his nature. When the causes come up again, then the will turns on. That's why second jhana, when you start to experience these things, they're kind of weird, they're unique, like nothing you've ever experienced before, but they're so delightful, I mean really delightful. And you're really blissing out. Even that first jhana, there was this one guy who was at Bodhinyana several years ago, I don't know why we actually let him stay, it was just out of compassion. He was, he was Australian, he was a, a heroin addict, and he came to Bodhinyana Monastery, he wasn't really a strong Buddhist, but he came there because he wanted to get over that addiction, you know, to cold turkey, to dry out. He had some sort of medication, which he said could work, he had his lovely wife who supported him to the max and said, can you please give him a chance to come to Bodhinyana Monastery to get over the heroin addiction? And they're just being with really good people. So we let him stay. He was a good man. But the way he described it, if you have an addiction like that, he said every day he has to say no, you know, 1,000 times. He just says yes once and he gets on the addiction again. It's just really tough. But anyway, the reason I tell the story was that one day I was 
going back to my room, my cave, and he came running after me and he said, I never thought I'd, I'd experience this, Ajahn Brahm. You keep on telling me for many years that this meditation, when you get into a jhana, please excuse me for saying this, that people criticize me, I don't know why, when I said the, the bliss of even the first jhana is better than sexual orgasm. A total different quality. And I know what I'm talking about. I wasn't born as a monk. I had girlfriends before. But anyhow, he came up to me running and said, Ajahn Brahm, I kind of thought that deep meditation must be better than sexual orgasm, but I never thought I'd ever say this. It was better than a heroin hit. I don't know about heroin because I've never had any of that. But he said that's a real pleasure on it. It's huge. Uh, and you want to know what happened to him. Again, it was sad. It's so impossible once you're addicted because, you know, one day he did say yes. So he's back on the addiction again. Many days, many weeks, I think, you know, he'd given up the addiction. And then just one moment of weakness, he said yes again, and then he was back on it. Back to square one. It's like snakes and ladders. Remember that kids' game? Did you play that kids' game? Where you go, you know, you get to the last square and you land on the snake and you go right back to the beginning again. And that's what it's like. So I've got a lot of compassion for people who get addicted to things like heroin. But anyway, what's that got to do with the second jhana? Oh yeah, (laughs) just the pleasure. That's just the first jhana, the pleasure of it. And then sometimes you think that that is the highest pleasure you can ever have in life. And then it just happens, just the mind goes deeper. You let go more. The mind sort of settles down and calms down. And as it settles down and calms down, the next thing which disappears again is the will. the Sankara Samatha, it calms down and it's just not there for you anymore. That's a weird experience but incredibly delightful. So that's better than sex, better than heroin, better than union with God which is first jhana. It's even more pleasure. These are the sorts of things which really blows your mind. You didn't think that such things existed in the world. No one told me about that. You know, that was, I know this one monk, because I can't tell you about personal experiences, but I know this one monk that when he emerged from a first jhana, he thought, why has no one ever told me about that? It's like this beautiful delight which is there, it's possible, and no one lets you know. I kind of felt shortchanged. But anyway, I let everybody know. <laughs> but in the second jhana, it's even more pleasure. It's because you're so still, you can't move. You don't need to move. Blissed out in stillness. And that's actually why the will has disappeared. Because you're still. Now, and you can't move. There's no button to press. You can't find anything to click, to do anything. You you want to be still, silent, peaceful? 
You can't avoid it there. No choice. Choice, will, vanish. But then it turns on again afterwards, when you come out. But what that does, there you are, very happy, very joyful, very mindful, and the will is not there. You're still there. You're still aware. And well, what happens is that's where you realize this thing which I thought was me and mine, my will, my choice, it can't be. Because I'm there, but will is nowhere to be found. It's not mine. And that's like an experience which is, you know, you can't ignore that. That's your own personal experience. It's not theory. You're perfectly aware and much, much happier. And that's also one of the reasons, I think I mentioned this to you, in the Buddhist cosmology, we've got this, this being, kind of equivalent to the, the Christian idea of a devil, but a little bit more refined. This is Mara. That's why we've got our city centre in Perth, in a suburb of? No, not Nola, Nola, Mara. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of singlish. You know, you always have that as an intensified. No, la, Mara. <laughs> but anyway, Mara is a high heavenly being. He's in this realm, which is just next to the high Brahma realms. And that was always fascinating, was even the cosmology of this. And what's his purpose? What does he do? His job is the control freak in chief of the universe. And each one of these heavenly realms have different types of pleasures. Many people get a lot of pleasure out of being in power and controlling others. It's the You've got all these different pleasures in this world, not just sensory pleasures. But the, the people who delight in creating, the aesthetes, and this is the one who controls the aesthetes, Mara. But they always say that if you get into any jhana, first, second, third, fourth, whatever, Mara can't find you. He can't get into those places, he's a control freak. And those jhanas are way more pleasurable. Anyway, that's uh, in the second jhana just, and beyond, just the world vanishes. It's just not there anymore. You don't decide, you're not suppressing, you're not ignoring, it's just not there. And it turns on again afterwards. Dear Ajahn, I am trying to release past trauma. I was in an abusive marriage for many years. I am trying to find my worthiness now that I am rebuilding my life. In order to be in full alignment with that which I wish to attract, it might boil down, boil down to a choice. Yet I find it difficult. Any thoughts? Okay, I'm not going to finish the questions again, but I'll promise to finish the ones from yesterday. 
this was uh, a story which I only found out about when some of the psychologists who come to, to um, Nolamara Center on a Friday night, they invited me to their institution which was called Assets, Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. You know there are many places in this world, I don't know what the E was, I think they just to make it sound good. But anyway, Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. And you know that many people come into a compassionate country like, reasonably compassionate country like Australia, and it used to be, I wish it was more now, but uh, they come here because they've been through unimaginable pain, torture, trauma, in some of these conflicts in the world. They get of these visas. So when they come through the immigration and customs are actually in the country, physically they're free and safe. But emotionally, the trauma they've been through is just, you know, the word I would say is just unbelievable. When you hear what some of these women and men have been through in these underground, usually military compounds, tortured and trauma, beaten and, please excuse me, multiply raped and treated just so horrendously that they survive. I think, I, I don't know if I could do that. But they survive and they're here in this country. But that trauma, really big trauma, is right inside of them. And anyway, this group of uh, psychologists, they invited me to come and see the a uh, little operation and to uh, to give it a blessing. I think that's what they asked. And I couldn't, I, I didn't understand why. And they said because a lot of the stuff which they do there is based on the teachings they heard at Nolamara Temple. Those were the, a lot of the uh, psychologists who kept on saying, we get permission to uh, be professional psychologists from the university, but all the important stuff we learn from you, the stuff they actually use. And one of those uh, techniques was based on the opening the door of your heart teaching. They took it much further. And what they did was, it was really incredible, that when the person who had survived torture and trauma but still had those scars, not on their body but inside, inside their emotional world, when they felt confident and safe, they were asked to sit on a chair, just you know, be uh, relaxed to the max, a little bit of relaxing meditation. And when they were ready to imagine in their chest area a door, double door, like the one behind me here. A double door, and open that door. And inside was the woman or the guy, you know, remembering their pleasant memories when they were a kid growing up, playing. You know, the times when they had the freedom which 
no people here feel. And, but that's only part of them. They look out, you know, they're inside, they look out, outside their hearts, on the cold, wet, unfriendly, concrete ground outside. They see this little girl who was badly abused, the boy who was beaten senseless, the person who was raped so many times for no reason. That's all of them. There's young boys and young girls, or even just uh, teenagers or in the first years of their adulthood, so badly treated. They're all outside. And then they imagine this staircase, you know, in these small aircraft, you know, they have this metal staircase, so you can go from the door of the aircraft down onto the ground. This staircase come out, you know, from where they're standing, you know, in their own heart, safe, protected, to those parts of themselves which they've kept outside for so many months, weeks, months, years. That's you, out there. The little girl who was brutally raped. The boy who was abandoned and beaten, not given any food. You see those people out there, you recognize them. That was you when you were just so small and vulnerable. And the next part of the practice, the therapy, is the person inside, that part of you you feel comfortable with. You invite all those other parts of you. The little girl, who's just so afraid because when she's trusted anybody, it hurts so much. You invite them, please come up. The door of my heart is open to you, no matter who you are. In fact, you are me. In the memory of what happened, this is so painful. But please come up, you're who I am. And one by one, those little girls, little boys, climb up the stairs. You need to give them so much encouragement. A lot of the time you can't do it in one, one session. They eventually all come up. That's who you are. Welcome. Come in. And the nice thing is, they were, of course they asked me to visit, and some of those survivors of torture and trauma now come to the talks on a Friday night in Nolamara. And my goodness, there's one I remember. You know, I forget exactly, I think it was from Middle Eastern lady. And she was telling one of the other kind young men who's part of our Buddhist society, you know, what happened to her. It's a, it's a really gruesome story. It made me feel how can one human being treat anybody like that? This is un- unbelievable. But nevertheless, she told her story. And the other young man, he blurted out, that's terrible what happened to you. And that's when this woman 
she just blurted out, you've got no right to say that, to judge it. That's who I am, that's me. She'd made peace with what had happened to her. She was free. That young woman who was so badly abused and beaten almost to death, that was who she was. And she wasn't afraid of admitting it. And she was like this incredibly strong angel. Just her character was fearless. And it really inspired me. I'm not doing justice uh, to that experience because of that lady, simply because sometimes you can't find the words powerfully enough to describe how she was. But you said it's because of that opening the door of her heart to herself. Not trying to perfect things first of all, but accepting everything. That's who she was. She was at peace with herself. And actually she was more than at peace with herself. She was just so strong and powerful, I mean emotionally. That's why I really admired her. And that's past trauma. This was extreme trauma. So I don't know what past trauma you've had a abusive marriage for many years. Yeah, it really hurts, but can you imagine those little women who are so badly abused? When you keep them outside of your heart, you want to forget about it, subdue it, or send it to a place where you can't remember it anymore, that actually makes it stronger. So instead you invite it in. It's a tough thing to do. That's why you make a little ceremony out of it, or not ceremony, but a, uh, a ritual out of it. You open the door, put down the stairs, and you spot those parts of you. You know, just even the memory of that, you know, cause you grief. You say, come in. It takes a lot of courage, but you do that. It's a powerful therapy. And I, I never thought that therapy would be used open the door of your heart for that. But I'm glad it was, how powerful it is. Okay, sorry, it just it makes me sort of really amazing. Just That's why these things which, you know, some of the stories I say, just make them even better. Use them in places I would never think you could use them. And after a while, they're highly effective. Anyway, next question. Let's just calm myself down a bit. Ajahn Brahm, does the law of karma apply to everyone, even to non-Buddhists, e.g. for those who are Catholic and have a mental condition, e.g. sociopaths? <laughs> Would karma apply to the unwholesome deeds? It can be argued if they don't know they are hurting others, then they can't be held responsible. What do you think? Now, first of all, I've never practiced or studied sociology. I never practiced you know, psychology. or Actually, I practiced I never studied it. But sometimes some of these terms, sociopaths. I've already mentioned I've never seen a murderer, but I've seen many people who have murdered. Does such a thing actually exist, a sociopath? Or is it the case that these are human beings 
who exhibits sociopathic tendencies. And to all intents and purpose, when they're looked at, they spend many years of their life almost uh, acting out the classical symptoms of a sociopath. But is that what they really are? Can they be more than that? And I say that because sometimes there was this experiment which was done in in education. I had to study that, you know, for one year before I became a school teacher, again for one year. Just trying to get myself a reputable job so I can convince my mother to let me become a monk. <laughs> but it's good. But one of the um experiments done there was the one with two classes of children. Same year, I gave them an exam never published the results, just said that you're going to be in grade A next year, you're going to be in grade B, you're in grade A, you're in grade B. They try to split it as equally as possible. Give, and even the teachers, the school teachers for the next year didn't know. The only people who knew were two psychologists and the principal. So some of these kids, they went home, Daddy, Daddy, I'm in grade A next year. How on earth did that happen? You'd be such a lazy, <laughs> naughty kid all year. Another, another girl said, Mummy, Mummy, I'm in grade B next year. Right, no more going to riding ponies anymore. No more going out to, uh, to music classes. You stay home and do your other classes. Because they believed it. They thought that grade A was meant they were, um, did much better in the in the exams the last year, that they were the top half. That's what they believed they were, and they were totally equal to those who, who were in grade B. But the kids who were in grade B thought they were second class. And of course, you know what happened next. After one year, they gave the exam for the end of the next school year, and those in grade A did so much better than those in grade B. And those in grade B obviously did much worse. Because they believed they were grade A kids, and they weren't, but when they believed that, they became grade A children. And those who were, believed they were grade B children became grade B kids. I don't know if you've seen that in real life, I've seen that so many times. I don't mind saying this for most of you from Singapore, but you know that you know, one of our monks, Ajahn Santuti, he was the one mostly responsible for this floor, working all night, he did it so well. Everything I get him to do, he does so amazingly well. He's highly intelligent and skilled. And I asked him, why didn't you go to university? And he told me why that early on in his life, you know, he did, had a bad exam, you know, one year, or I don't know if it was really that bad, but his grandfather, who was you know, the head of the family, looked at the results of you know, one exam and said, you're stupid, you're hopeless, you're a disgrace to the family, really scolded him. And this was the head of his family, Vietnamese. And he believed him because it was someone in authority in his family called him stupid. He became stupid at school.
but these days you look at him and crikey, he's highly intelligent. But he never learned how to express that in the usual academic fashion. But I'd give him anything to do, and I know he'd do always a great job. Even he gives talks as well at Nolamara. So it's people like that made me, I don't know if that's happened to you. Even in the class I taught, my main subject was maths. So there's this kid, and the previous teacher said, this kid just cannot do maths, he's hopeless, bottom of the class. And just as an experiment uh, to prove that you know, these ideas of judging you, putting you in a box, and you can never escape from that box, I spent extra time with him after every maths lesson. Do you understand that? And praise him when he got it right. Yeah, well done, you, see, you can do maths. And I was giving so many maths lessons, all the maths lessons for a whole year to this class. And after the lesson, did you understand that? I said, no, sir, but it's like this. Oh, yes. I couldn't give that extra attention to every kid in the class. There's no time for that. But that kid, honestly, he was bottom of the class the year before, and that year he came top of the class in maths. It really kind of shook me. That is there a person you cannot do maths? You cannot do English? No. You've been taught that, you believe that, you become that. That's why the law of karma applied to everyone, even to non-Buddhists. A, a Catholic... Who was a Catholic? No, that's what you are a lot of the time. You're not always a Catholic. What is a Catholic, anyway? What is a, a, a Jew? There are many monks who are Jews. By race. But they practice Buddhism. They've got a word for that now, they call it Jew-Buds. <laughs> I suppose you have cat-Buds. Is that okay for a Catholic? You call them a cat-Bud or a Bud-Cat? <laughs> I don't know. You know, because I really did hard work to try and make contacts with people of other faiths here. And I already mentioned to you the previous abbot of New Norcia uh, Monastery in Perth. Let's see, that was the first monastery you know, in Western Australia. In fact, to the north of this place. And you know, we made contact, we became really good friends. And he was the one, it's a nice story to tell uh, tonight. You know, he took me around the monastery, New Norcia Monastery. It's a Benedictine monastery. He took me around there, and it's very old buildings. So I asked him, are there any ghosts in this old monastery? You know what he said? You can understand this. He said, Catholics, we don't believe in ghosts. He'd fallen into my trap. <laughs> what, a, what about the Holy Ghost? Ah! <laughs> so we laughed together. <laughs> Just old memories of, of Abbot Placid. So I remember, because he was uh, quite happy to go to these ceremonies where they needed a 
people from other religions, that they, the, the ordination of the first Anglican bishop who was a female, Kate Goldsworthy. So I was invited there together with Abbot Placid and the head of the Uniting Church. And so we were seated, reasonably close to the front, but on the heretics pew, I called it. And I don't know if you've ever been to an ordination of a bishop in the Catholic Church. It took two hours, a really long time. So after the first half an hour of behaving ourselves, then we started to tell jokes together. Now that Placid had some wonderful jokes, so did the Uniting Church minister. We were all rebellious, and they couldn't throw us out because we were leaders of other religions. I really remember that. It was really good fun. And then eventually, Abbot Placid sort of died. And when he died, I got invited to his funeral and even invited up to say a few words about him, his funeral mass. That was really important to me. You know, just to say, just, I don't care you're a Catholic or you're Anglican or whoever. You know, my friend, it's nice to say those few words. That was really good fun. Anyway, the law of karma applied to everyone, even to non-Buddhists. It does, it's just cause and effect, that's all. But the major parts of karma is, again, when you die, what are you going to do? Or even in this life, you know, all that stuff which you, you have done, can you forgive yourself? That's one of the amazing things about Buddhism, that that is a possibility, no matter what you've done. Acknowledge, that's the first part, this is what you've done. You're not a perfect human being, you've done something wrong. You've murdered somebody, like that guy in Karna, I think he's still in there. There's only two murders, only two bad bricks in the world. In the wall. What about the 998 beautiful bricks in the wall? He's got a point. He did that murder, you know, years ago when he was um, young and didn't know what he was up to. Oh, sorry, I've got all these stories, but the stories, that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, the German edition, you know, translated into German. They chose another title for that story, the Coup de Vainty. Anyone speak Deutsch here? The Coup de Vainty, the cow that cried. Yeah, and that's one of the stories in the book. Where that came from was going into Carnot Prison Farm teaching. One of the prisoners came up to me. He said, I need to talk to you. And this prisoner was really big, six, three, six, four, five, or something, and he was full of scars. And he was a very violent man. And uh, he told me some of his history. He was born in Belfast, you know, during the Troubles, they called it. And he said he was first stabbed 
when he was six years of age in primary school. The school bully came up to him and asked for his dinner money. And he said, no. And the bully never asked again, just took out a knife and plunged it into his arm. It was a, the shock was you know, worse than the pain. He'd been stabbed in primary school. His father's house, or you know, rented place he was living, was only just round the corner. So this child ran to his daddy. Daddy, daddy, I've been stabbed with blood running down his arm. And daddy just took him into the kitchen. Never dressed the wound, never put a bandage on it, but just took a knife out of the kitchen drawer, gave it to his son and said, go and stab him back. He said, that's how he grew up. This invite, And please, excuse me, when he was saying this, he kept on in, uh, interjecting, this is God's own square word truth. You know, because he, he wanted me to... You know, it's an amazing story, but he wanted to know that it was absolutely true. And he'd been grown up in violence. And he was a very violent man, you could see from his body scars. And he actually did tell me he killed humans, part of, you know, what he was up to. And he was in jail. You know, in this jail, Carnot Prison Farm, it's a farm. And they don't just grow carrots and veggies. They have sheep, cows, pigs, I don't know what else. And they have a slaughterhouse there. They supply meat to many of the people in the prisons throughout West Australia. An abattoir, a slaughterhouse, needs a head slaughterer. And he said you had to fight for that position. And he was the head slaughterer at Carnot Prison Farm. You can see he was tough as anything. This is God's own effing truth, he kept on saying. And he'd been <laughs> slaughtering cows, sheep, pigs, everything, and just wading in blood all day. What a wonderful therapy that is for a convicted murderer. It's crazy to me. But anyway, they think, well, once they get released, they'll have a job. So, he described just the slaughterhouse. They have these really strong stainless steel rails and they go uh, wide at the entrance and narrow uh, at the end, just enough for one animal to basically be pushed through. And he was on this raised platform with a gun, you know, the electric gun. And there was always one shot to stun because he couldn't aim properly. And then once the animal was stunned, second to kill. On this day, they needed beef. The cows were being killed. And he said, you know, he'd done this for such a long time. He said, they all knew what was happening. 
they'd always scream or in their, in their own way try to escape if they could but they were being pushed into this um, like a funnel and then the one cow would be there again not standing still you'd have to stun it first of all the second to kill and that's when the this is God's own effing truth really started to be said loudly there was a cow came in the only cow I'd ever seen do this voluntary never made a noise never tried to wriggle free positioned itself almost like voluntarily you know just in the space below his platform when it was positioned voluntarily it turned its head and looked at this big Irish violent man made eye contact he said he'd never seen anything like this in his life it was real for him, he was there and he said he couldn't pull the trigger of the gun they just stood staring at each other for a while he didn't know how long but it must have been a while because then he noticed something again weird which he'd never seen in his life and the left, you know how big cow's eyes are? they're huge just in one of the eyes above the lower lid there was water welling up and got into a time that just watching even though he knew what was happening the water welled up so much the eyelid could not contain it any longer and water dripped over the cow's eyelid and down the cow's cheek what's the other eye was doing the same that water also could not be contained by the eyelid and it dripped down the cow was crying at that point he threw down the gun he said that cow ain't dying he said that was the last time he would do anything like that his violence, violent life had ended he said I'm a vegetarian now God's own effing truth I'm a vegetarian <laughs> <laughs> the way he said it you know that sort of changed his life seeing a cow just crying that's how it became the title story of opening the door of your heart in Deutsche Karma applied to everyone, even to cows. I reckon. So, but anyway, so you may be a very violent person, but then something happens and you can change. You may be a sociopath, exhibiting sociopathic tendencies. You're more than that. Even encouraging people to realize you're more than a rapist, you're more than a thief. You're more than a terrorist. So much more. And if that part of that human being can be recognized, and the human being can recognize them more than what terrible things they did, they never need to do those things again.
Okay. Again, they don't know they're hurting others. Sometimes, I'm not sure if that's true either. Because a lot of times, this is just what some of the prisoners in jail, you tell me, because you get to be very friendly with them and they were so honest. It's strange, isn't it? Prisoners being more honest than people on the outside. They were more honest because they had nothing to lose. If you tell me the truth about some of the things you've got up to, you may lose something. In jail you've already lost everything. So that their honesty is very refreshing. But even some of the sociopaths or psychopaths, you know, one of the most notorious psychopaths I've met was Ronnie Cray, one of the Cray twins in UK. They did a film about them. He was the one who was, uh, he was gay, he was uh, medically, uh, should have been in an institution. He was uh, medically, I forget what they called him, but anyway, he was medically just unfit to be you know, in society. And he'd killed, beaten up, he was very cruel. When I saw him in jail, in Broadmoor, that was the jail in England for the clinically uh, insane who were uh, did cr criminally insane, so not clinically insane. So anyway, I saw him. He was very sweet and nice. And in the end, shook my hand and said, if ever I have any money, if ever I have five quid, I'll send it to your monastery. He meant it, but he didn't have any money, not in jail. It was really nice. You can see there was another side to him which other people hadn't seen. I'm sure many people seen, but it's wonderful that I could see that. Was he a psychopath? Or is that part of him? And there's much more to him underneath. Okay, anyway, let's get going. So, they, they do know they're hurting others. And everyone in prison always tells me, whatever crime they did, honestly, they wish they'd have never done that. They regret it. I wish you could turn back time and do it again. Uh, not, not do it again, do that time again, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Okay. Anyway, dear Ajahn, how to do contemplation at the end of the day? Exam example for the good deeds we have done. People find it so difficult to receive praise. Some years ago, I was awarded this John Curtin Medal at Curtin University. It's one of the universities here. I didn't know why, but it was supposed to be for um, vision, community service, and leadership. And I said, I wear glasses. What do you mean, vision? <laughs> community service? That's what the, you know, the courts impose on you instead of going to jail, do 100 hours of community service. So I thought it must be leadership. <laughs> but anyway, he went along there for the ceremony. And this is like quite a prestigious... John Curtin was one of the wartime leaders 
of Australia, Prime Minister of Australia. So anyway, the, these academics had done their research and they said, you deserve this medal. So they presented it to me. But, in all these sort of presentations, you normally have to give a speech. So my speech was, I think you can understand it, I said, thank you so much for giving me this award. I don't deserve it. There are other people in this community here in Perth who've done much more amazing work than I've ever done, who deserve it much more than I do. And anyway, I couldn't have done all of this work without the help of all the other people supporting, including you, you know, who support me. But thanks anyway. And then I received the medal. But then, the next year, there was this Professor Jofi received the award. And he was one of the, he, he was the head of haematology at one of the big hospitals in Perth. So, you know, treating cancers. But he did more than treat cancers. He just managed to use his position in the hospital to kick out a few people in the rooms of the hospital and turn those rooms over to the Alternative Therapy Centre. He got a sponsor, which was a Brown's Dairy at the time, and in that Alternative Therapy, anyone who went into the hospital for cancer treatments, that was his area, could go and have a foot massage, or Reiki, or homeopathy, or anything which was abnormal. And he said in his acceptance speech that you know, the results were amazing. Because they go into hospital and everyone was so busy, including him, and they get the best treatment, but no care. Have you been to a treatment in hospitals? And people don't have time just to hold your hand or talk to you about all sorts of things. So even they may be giving you a foot massage, all for free, they can talk to you. Didn't know if foot massage works, reflexology, but someone is there with you, having physical contact, being kind, and talking. And that's what he did there. I don't know about you, but I was so inspired. You know, he got a lot of flack from his colleagues. This is not scientific. You know, we should turn this over to place where you can do more experiments or something more scientific. But he did this and the results were amazing. And anyway, when he received his medal, it was a year after I received my medal, that he gave his speech and he said, I don't know why you've given this award to me. There's other people in this hospital and even wider who do much better work than I do. And anyway, I couldn't have done this without the help of all of my assistants. And I straight away thought, hey, that was my speech. <laughs> and I realised that's almost everybody's speech. When somebody praises you, oh, there's nothing, it's just what I do. And anyway, I couldn't have done that without other people helping me. How many of you formally refuse praise. And I went back afterwards, that really shook me. I went back 
you know, to my cave afterwards, <laughs> and I thought, there's some highly intelligent people at this university had actually done their research. And they weren't Buddhist even. One of the main ones was the chaplain, this Anglican guy, Anglican guy. And they thought I deserved a medal. And most say I don't deserve it. It was almost like offensive to them. Disregarding, you know, the fact they'd done their research, they'd just gone into detail. And I said, this Professor Jofi certainly deserved it. I could see that, but when it's given to you, you feel you don't. We reject praise. Crazy thing. And I look back, why did I reject praise? And that was because my mother told me, if you accept praise, you'll just get a big head. So I was afraid of praise. I was just nothing, I just, it's just what you do. But I found, if you accept praise, you don't get a big head, you get a big tummy. <laughs> no! <laughs> That's just a joke. If you accept praise, you get a big heart. You just want to do that again. Do more, do better, serve more, serve better, give to others. And that's the truth of it. So if anyone praises you, I Ling, just how long have you been helping out, serving the Buddhist Fellowship Bodhinyana Singapore Brahm Center, organizing everybody for this retreat? Does she deserve some praise? Will you accept it? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not your sheep, whatever it is, that serve the praise. You do. Sometimes people just haven't, haven't learned how to accept praise. It's real. Now, if you do that to somebody, and you praise that prisoner who just did all the cooking for us here a few years ago. What that means to him is enormous. These prisons in jail realize they're not lost causes. There's something beautiful and good in them. And because of that, they become so much better human beings. Anyway. Uh, okay, that's how you remember the good deeds. You're not afraid of remembering them. It's important to remember them. You praise other people. I was told as a kid that flattery gets you nowhere. That's totally wrong. Flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> it's true. Flatter yourself. Okay. Well, crikey. When I reach a certain level of stillness, I start seeing murky or muddy dull colours. Okay. Instead of the bright lights, others often mention, am I doing it correctly? Of course it's correct. There's nothing wrong. You just need to be a bit more patient. And as you become patient, keep it still, you're not wasting the energy. Those dull colours, murky, dull, muddy dull colours, that's only a start. And as... You just be still, just wait, be patient, be kind. Then those lights brighten up. 
I've done this so many times, it's really good fun. But the one example I often say is one of those uh, scenes I saw in my meditation was of like this green hills, you know, with a few trees and a nice stream running on a nice blue sky, a nice beautiful sunny day. It was like an idyllic landscape. But it was, we call those complicated limiters, too many things. But then I noticed that one of the trees, on one of its leaves, there was a dewdrop. And that was sparkling in the morning sun in my little vision. And I was smart enough to actually to zoom in on that dewdrop. You know, like if you go on Google Maps, you want to find the new BF Centre in Lavender Road. You know, you can get Singapore and then get Lavender Road and then Google it in, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You see, you know, what they did. And that's actually what you do in limiters. In muddy, dull colours. So you find out the most beautiful part of that muddy colour. There's always one part which is more delightful than others, which is more brilliant, even only slightly. You zoom in on that. So that little dewdrop sparkling, everything else sort of fell off the screen as you zoom in. And that became a beautiful limiter. And you go into the most beautiful part of the beautiful limiter. And the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part. And you bliss out. So easy to do if you have a positive mind. Instead of thinking, oh, this is useless, or I'm useless. You're never useless. You go into the most beautiful part of you. The most beautiful part of your day. The most beautiful part of whatever you're aware of. And of course, you know, it's just so easy to be aware of bliss. <laughs> Silly thing to say, isn't it? But it's true. So when you're aware of this beautiful light that becomes powerful limiter, you have a wonderful time. So it's a start. Also, after a few moments, the mind would then conjure up something disrupted to jolt me out of the stillness, like two people in my mind shouting at each other at maximum volume, or an absurd event in my head that comes with huge commotion, e.g. yesterday a group of nurses and chefs ran across the room and to the door. Why does the mind do this and how do I work to help it? Sometimes we're afraid of success, like we're afraid of praise. A lot of that came from your upbringing. Even at school, I saw myself doing this when I was a school teacher. You criticize faults, but you never praise successes. Oh, that's okay, you come top, well done. But you made a mistake, you should never do that again. Don't be late. When you go to work, how many times does your boss, pa- boss praise you? How many times they criticize you in one day? How many of you are the boss? <laughs> when you go to work, 
see if you can um, determine you're going to praise your workers much more, many times more than you criticize them. Honestly, I really try to do that with the monks under my care. They do something wrong, I don't mind about that. They do something right, I praise them. I think I often, I actually do that. I've got to be careful I'm not over-exaggerating it, but I think I do that. At least that's, you know, what you aim to do. You get much more out of the community which you lead if you praise them more and not criticise them. The monks aren't here this evening, but, you know, some of the residents, the cooks are here. Van and Lee. Hi down there. You've done, you've done they're, they're in the back there. You've done a wonderful service during the range retreat, cooking for us, helping out. How many times did I, I criticise you this range retreat? How many times? How many times have I praised you? At least tonight is one. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you do praise? You feel better and you work harder for me. <laughs> That's how you exploit people. <laughs> but they no, don't do it for exploitation. You just want to make you feel happy when you come here. Okay. I'll put it. There's just two more questions from two days ago. <laughs> Today's questions. Anyway. How likely is it that a lay person who meditates every day and is virtuous becomes a stream winner? One in ten, one in a million, etc. <laughs> really likely. I say they certainly will become a stream enterer. Sometime, maybe not in this life, but certainly they will do something. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to become anything. Just be at peace. Enjoy this moment. If you want something, it's always a long way from you. When you don't want it, you're peaceful. You find it just happens by itself. Dear Ajahn, good evening. While I can understand one has to uncondition to let go of body, experiences, perceptions and consciousnesses, but to let go of will. How to function if our will intention is being let go of? much more peacefully. Sometimes I gave a simile of like the prison. I'm talking about prisons again. <laughs> and it's like in a prison, you're in a cell. You've been born in that cell. You got used to it. And many of you find another prisoner in the cell of the different gender, and you marry them. You have a nice ceremony inside jail. And a big feast, and you have a few little prisoners after a while. You can share your life in the jail. And you find after a while that jail has these five big walls around it sight, hearing, smell, taste, and physical touch. That defines your life. And in that cell, if you're a good prisoner, you can move into a bigger cell 
a nice little apartment, even your own. It feels like a house in the cell with a nice big TV screen and even in the back of the cell a nice swimming pool. And you can get in a car and drive to other parts of the prison. You can even get in, in aircraft and fly to other prisons. <laughs> but you're still in prison with the five high walls of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. And sometimes you want to escape but you have this prison guard. You know who the prison guard, what his name is? Will, yeah. Will the prison guard. Never allows you any moment of peace. You're trying to meditate and Will comes up. No, you shouldn't meditate now. You should be doing something for somebody else. You should be you know, getting on the internet to check your emails. How's your mother? How's your father? How's your dog? You know, it's, you're selfish just being by yourself and being uh, simple and still. No, you're not allowed to be still. All those thoughts which come into your mind to disturb you. It's like you're being controlled by this thing which you call will. But one day, you learn this is this big rebel in jail called the Buddha who tells you how to trick will into disappearing. And when you dis will disappears, there's no one in there telling you what to do. You're peaceful, you're free. You don't have to think. You don't have to do, you don't have to do anything. That's why when you meditate, you don't do meditation. Meditation is what happens when you stop doing things. And then after a while, it's like the will falls asleep. When it falls asleep, then you can escape. You can see what's beyond those five big walls of the five senses. Just even seeing the realm of the mind. That's not enlightenment yet, but it's getting a long way towards it. <coughs> Being free. But I say that, most people say, nah. You've lived in jail for such a long time. You rather stay there. Sometimes, you know, to be free from jail, is this is what it's like. You have to keep shaving your hair every few weeks and wear simple robes. It's no fun being free from jail, is it? That's why you look at the monks and nuns who teach you. That's why I'm fortunate to be with someone like an Ajahn Chah. When you see how he behaves, see, that's what I want to be like. Okay. Good evening. Thank you. Sadhu. Sadhu. Sadhu.